even in the most stable patient, in the most stable case, we are constantly uh, evaluating the patient, watching the vital signs, deciding what medications need to happen, preparing for what might happen. So that's another aspect. A lot of anesthesia is preparing for what might go wrong. And if it never goes wrong, you never do it. So all that preparation you might think was for naught. Well, no, it's because if it happens, there's no time to then start preparing. If there's a disaster, if there's a crisis, whether the surgeons, you know, accidentally get into the aorta, and this happened a couple of weeks ago, and the surgeons in a case actually next to mine, but I went in to help, uh, literally accidentally punctured the aorta and lost about, you know, three liters of blood in 30 seconds. Uh, you can't then think, oh, gee, I better start getting ready to deal with this crisis. As you may know, when patients have laparoscopic surgery, now there's surgeries that are done completely laparoscopic. And what that means is that instead of opening a big incision, let's say in the belly, the surgeons will make very small incisions and put in cameras and a kind of extendable instruments and do the surgery via that camera and all just with these small incisions. And so as I said, to start those, you make little incisions and they have to put in what are called ports. They have to put in ports that allow them then through that port to put in their instruments. And every once in a while, this is a, you know, a well-described thing. Those ports, as they go in, instead of just going into basically space, will go into something they're not supposed to go into. And so uh, a few weeks ago, there was a patient who um, was having a, a, what was going to start off as a laparoscopic surgery. But when they went in to just do the laparoscopic part, so they just put in the laparoscope, uh, like I mentioned before, they uh, managed with that port to hit the aorta and cut it open. And so you can imagine this is really a problem because it, obviously the it's a aorta, problem. The aorta just, for people who are not doctors, is the largest blood vessel in the human body. Uh, all the blood that reaches the lower two-thirds of the body goes through it. It's kind of like a garden hose. You can empty out every drop of blood in your body uh, very quickly through the aorta. Very quickly, yes. It is the the major artery in the body. And so uh, when so this is bad for two reasons. One, it's always bad to accidentally cut open the aorta. But two, uh, there was no way to get to it because they were in a laparoscopy. They had one little tiny port and a camera through it. So what happened is the patient lost most of their blood into their belly in about, you know, less than a minute. So uh, we, as and what you do anytime there's a crisis in anesthesia is you call for help. You call, you say to the nurse, call an anesthesia stat. My, I was with my resident in the room next door. I left my resident there and went next door. So we go in and the patient uh, has a very low blood pressure. The first sign that something has happened was the patient's blood pressure started to plummet, right? So this is what's really kind of crazy is that you don't, the patient's not going to move because they're under anesthesia. The surgeon isn't looking at anything yet because all they did was put a port in. This was like they went from, you know, 140 over, you know, 90 to 50 over 20 uh, in, in instantly, right? So this is big time, very scary. I was actually the very first person to respond because I was right next door. You know, we said, it sounds like the patient's probably bleeding. And sure enough, at the same time, the surgeons were putting in the camera and seeing blood everywhere coming out and, and quickly opening the belly. Um, the patient lost most of their blood into their belly and then actually what we call coded, right? So they actually, their heart, they lost so much blood, their heart didn't have anything to 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 push anymore. And so they went into cardiac arrest. And so uh, what we do in those situations is ask the surgeons to start chest compressions because they're right there. And we then need to do all of the things that you do in a, in a 
what we call a code, which is a cardiac arrest. And so we're giving epinephrine. We knew it was bleeding. And so we had to very quickly get a lot of blood into the room. And then we had to set up you may be familiar with a level one transfuser. Instead of fluids going in just by gravity dripping in, it's ramming them in. This is a machine that can very rapidly, now you have to have appropriate access, right? So if all you have is a, you know, a tiny little 22 gauge IV in the so finger. you've got multiple people at this point getting additional access. Surgeons, of course, were packing and compressing everything in there to try to um, stop the bleeding. Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. Hello, and welcome to Medical Murmurs. My guest today is Jed Walpa. He is uh, a doctor who operates in many domains. He is an assistant professor here at Johns Hopkins in anesthesia and critical care. He is also the director of the residency training program in anesthesia and critical care. And in addition, he has a very widely listened to podcast on scientific matters in anesthesia and critical care. Welcome to Medical Murmurs. Paris, it's an absolute pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, I always like to start by just asking you to tell yourself, tell us a little bit about you and your life just where you grew up as a prelude to how you got into medicine. Absolutely. I'm used to giving this spiel. We're in the midst of interview season. So uh, every Monday and Tuesday, I give a little introduction of myself. I grew up outside of Cleveland, Ohio, in a suburb called Shaker Heights. Um, went to high school there and then went to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, undergraduate. Uh, I studied history and went straight to uh, Harvard Graduate Medical School of Education, uh, where I did a master's in education and got my teaching license, and then actually went back to the same high school where I had studied, so Shaker Heights High School, and taught high school history there for a year, um, and really enjoyed a lot of things about it, but, uh, and happy to get into this if you want, decided to make a, a switch, quite a a uh, large switch and uh, stopped teaching, did some pre-med stuff. I had some that I had done in college, but finished it up and then applied to medical school. I ended up uh, deciding to go out to San Francisco to UCSF for medical school. Um, I kind of loved everything in medical school and had a hard time deciding on a specialty. Uh, but as you will well understand, uh, kind of came down to, among others, anesthesia and emergency medicine, really decided on emergency medicine, matched in emergency medicine, and started my emergency medicine residency at a great program called uh, Highland, uh, which is also Alameda County Medical Center. Which is a very famous emergency medicine program. Great program. Fantastic folks there. Um, still have lots of fond memories of my year there. Uh, but I fell in love with critical care during my intern year, early on in my intern year. Uh, and that was actually about a year or two before you could do a critical care fellowship through emergency medicine. And so while there were rumors of it uh, coming, it wasn't clear that it would and it wasn't sure. And so I knew that if I wanted to be an intensivist, I had to switch into something else. Uh, as I said, had always loved anesthesia, knew a lot of folks at UCSF who had done anesthesia and critical care who I admired a lot, talked to them and in the end ended up deciding to switch. And so Luckily, they had a spot for me, so I didn't lose any time. My ER intern year counted as my intern year, and then I started my residency back at UCSF and finished it there in 2014. 
and then moved here with my wife, uh, who I had met while I was a medical student. And uh, we had had our first two of what are now three daughters at the time. And so my wife and my two daughters and I moved to Baltimore for my ICU fellowship at Johns Hopkins in 2014. It's a one-year fellowship, finished it in 2015, stayed on faculty, and uh, we've been here ever since, and we love it. So you're not the first doctor in your family. No, I'm not. We have a, a ridiculous problem in our family of not diversifying. We are all physicians. So my parents are both doctors. They have three sons who are all doctors. All three of their sons married doctors. So we have uh, failed to diversify. And if, if healthcare ever goes out of business, we'll be in big trouble. When you were doing your master's in education, did you think you were going in a different direction? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I did my master's in education uh, straight out of college, very much thinking I was going to be a teacher and perhaps you know get into K through 12 administration. Uh, but I, did, I had was not planning on going into healthcare at all. What I did know was that I loved teaching and education, and that uh, has not changed. Was there a moment that crystallized your change in professional path away from education and schools to thinking about being a doctor and then a medical educator? The kids I was teaching, I realized, didn't know, they, they didn't get the newspaper and they didn't know how to read or get information from a newspaper. And then I realized, okay, they need to learn how to read a newspaper. This is a very important part of being a citizen of our country. And so I went to my department head and I said, you know, I'd like to, I've got these free newspapers. I think my kids need this. I'd like to take a couple of weeks and do a unit on news, the news, how to read a newspaper, what's important, how to figure out what's important, what the different parts of a newspaper are. And I'll never forget, he said to me, you know, you're absolutely right. That's hugely important, but you can't do it because it's not on the test and you can't, you can't fall behind in terms of preparing them for the test. And I just realized, you know, this isn't why, this isn't the way I wanted to teach and, and I don't have the flexibility that I want. Let's get back to your medical career. What was it about emergency medicine and how did you actually choose it as your first specialty? So for a medical student, you do all the fun stuff. You have none of the time pressure. And, uh, you know, it's kind of the concentrated greatness without any of the downsides. And that's probably true in other clerkships as well, but I think none, none quite as much as the emergency department. So I, I mean, what could be better than rotating at Highland with all of that, right? I mean, there's these incredible attendings, incredible residents, patients with, you know, just every kind of pathology you can imagine in a very busy emergency room with tons of trauma. And you, again, as the medical student are just doing the, the most exciting parts of it. So I loved it. Who wouldn't? And I think that's very typical. People love their emergency medicine rotations. Um, so that was a, that was a big attraction. I also, uh, I liked the breadth of kind of feeling like there was so much you could do. So, you know, it's, it's nice to feel like you have this wide array of information and, and you're very useful. You can really help people in a crisis. I mean, there's all those things that go into it. And so it was attractive for a lot of reasons. Plus of course, and I think a huge influence on medical students is just the mentors you meet. If you meet people in a specialty that you really like, I told you I almost went to OBGYN solely because of Aaron Coy. Um, and similarly, there were just great people, Gene Hearn and Charlotte Wills at Highland, uh, who, who I believe are still there, just really dynamic, wonderful people. Uh, the residents there are just these superstars. And then what shifted you over to thinking that anesthesia was the right specialty for you to move into? So the primary, I'd say there were two things. One was the, the so my second month of intern year, uh, the first month was in the ED and the second month was in the ICU. And I just loved 
the ICU. I loved it. I mean, again, these things happen. I worked with um, Colin Feeney, who was the head of the ICU there and was just, the, again, this incredibly dynamic, just unbelievably smart, knowledgeable, fun, dedicated faculty member. Uh, and just happened to be the attending when I was in there. And and he might have even, maybe even the whole month, certainly two weeks of that month, if not more. And so learned a ton from him, felt like I felt um, I had, during that first month in the ED, had, had again, now not a med student, now an intern, now with actual responsibilities, had felt a very different experience than I had as a medical student. Didn't, by no means did I, did I hate it, but I, I was starting to question whether this was definitely the right um, career for me, uh, and then seeing uh, the ICU and really feeling a, a feeling I hadn't felt uh, before. And I never did any ICU as a medical student. UCSF doesn't require it. So I had never done an ICU rotation. And I just loved it that whole month. And that was one of the major things is feeling like, wow, I really feel like I want to be an intensivist. So that was part one, because again, you couldn't be an intensivist through emergency medicine. Draw a little picture about what it was about intensive care that attracted you, not just the role models, but the actual life of and the work? I think it was getting to make a difference for people in this in very critical time. And, uh, you know, you do that sometimes in the ED. Uh, certainly as a medical student, you, you, as I said, that's the concentrated piece you see. But of course, as you well know, uh, the vast majority of patients who come through the ED uh, are not critical. And uh, in fact, there's maybe very little that they that you can actually do for them. Uh, whereas in the in the uh, critical care unit, in the ICU, it is kind of a lot of intensity a lot of the time. And you can really make a difference for patients, you can really make a difference for families. That was another thing I found myself drawn to was the I was being able to feel like I'd always valued communication skills. This is part of being a teacher, of course, is being able to figure out how to communicate with each individual student who may have different needs, who may be going through crises, who may be really struggling, who may have a bad home situation and need some some help and support. And so those skills that I found that I had when I was teaching were really applicable in the ICU. You're, of course, constantly teaching. You're teaching students, you're teaching residents, you're teaching families and patients about their disease, about the treatment that they're getting. And the way you do that, if you do it well, you can make a huge difference for patients, for families. If you don't do it well, you can really make their experience a lot worse. We now know with you know, the phenomenon you may know of post-intensive care syndrome and post-intensive care syndrome F for family, that both patients and families suffer quite a lot after they get out of the ICU. They have increased risk of depression, anxiety, and PTSD. And I believe that we can modify that risk by helping them do well during the time they're in the ICU, not just from a, taking physical care of them, but talking to them in a supportive way, helping them understand what's going on. For example, Families really struggle when they have to make a decision about withdrawing support from a patient who is dying, from a loved one who's dying. And we know that having to make that decision is a risk factor for developing PTSD. But if we can help a family member get through that and realize that, in fact, we're not asking them to you know, flip the switch, to turn off life support, what we're asking them to do is help us understand their loved one, because of course, they know them so much better than we do. And to understand what the loved one would want. So I tell patients, families, I'm not asking you to tell me what to do. 
I'm asking you to help me know your father, brother, wife, whatever it is, so that I can know what they would want me to do. And if I can really communicate that in a way that helps them believe that and know that, then I think, th I, and I see it, I see the, the stress level come down and the understanding that they're, they're not having to make this decision. They're just helping us understand what their loved one would want. That makes a huge difference. So as I started to see, and by no means as an intern was I good at any of this, but I watched Dr. Feeney do it and be so expert at it. And I you know, got to see that some of those skills I had recognized in myself that made me what I think was a good teacher also could play out in making me a, a someone who could help families and patients in the ICU. So that was really a powerful experience. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. So I think it's a good time to start talking about your working life now. And I guess it would be good to start with the clinical side because you do a lot more than just clinical work. Uh, you're an educator and you have this podcast. Um, but if we uh, try to focus on a day where you're clinical, start us with when you wake up in the morning and just how does your day go? I and, can, and, and I think it would be good for people who are thinking about anesthesia specialty or just people who are not doctors but curious about what that life is like to just give us a, a feel. Yes, I'm happy to do that. And uh, I, it's a little different whether we're talking about a day in the ICU or a day in the OR. Which would you like me to start with? Uh, let's look at the OR. Okay. So the day in the OR actually starts the night before uh, because, or I should say the afternoon before. At some point the afternoon before, I will find out my assignments for the next day. Now, because I'm the residency director, I almost without exception work with residents. Makes sense. And so usually what will happen is that assignment sheet will come out and I will see that I have two rooms, two operating rooms the next day. Uh, each with a resident in the room. So I'll see which residents I'm working with and which ORs, which operating rooms I am in and with them and which cases are assigned to those rooms with which surgeon. So then I will look up those cases to see, you know, what's, what's happening with the patient, what surgery are they having, what comorbidities do they have, why do they need the surgery, you know, how's their heart, how's their lungs, et cetera. Right? So I'll read their chart. Then that evening, my resident will call me and will say, you know, hey, they'll page me or text me and they'll say whenever you're, you know, available, I, I'm ready to discuss the cases. And so my resident, each one separately will call me and, and present to me just as if you're on internal medicine, you would present to your attending, you know, on rounds. Um, they, anesthesia residents will present to their attending the night before and they will say, here's the patient that we have. Now, again, I've already looked them up, right? So that I have this, I can have this discussion intelligently. But the resident will tell me what they've found out about the patient and what they'd like to do. So what their anesthesia plan is for that patient for the next day. So the first patient for each of my two rooms. The residents will be either be seeing them at that time or have already seen them. And so I'll go in, I'll introduce myself, I'll say hello. Um, I'll just verify that the resident has, has in fact seen them and gotten their consent. So we do a separate anesthesia consent, separate than surgical consent. And, uh, and I'll just chat with the patient for a few minutes, make sure they know who I am, they feel comfortable. If, if they have any questions, I certainly answer them, do a, a brief exam, even though the resident has already done one. And, uh, and then, you know, it varies a lot. Some patients are completely fine, totally comfortable. They've had surgery. They know exactly what they're getting into. They have no questions and they are not anxious. The other extreme would be patients who are, are crying and extremely anxious and, you know, are afraid of the anesthesia. They think they're not going to wake up. 
Uh, and those patients obviously need a very different approach and, and more time, and that's fine. Uh, one of the nice things about our system is that the resident is getting everything ready, and I have some time during that 7 to 7.30 uh, half an hour, we we take the patients back at 7.30 to the operating room. And so if I see them at 7, between 7 and 7.30, I can spend, you know, 10 or 15 minutes if I need to, and if the patient needs me to. Um, and, and in fact, that's a very rewarding experience. I think one of the things you hear a lot from people going into anesthesia is that the they recognize the ability to really impact a patient in a short amount of time. One of the, I think, misconceptions of anesthesia is that your patients are asleep, right? So it's kind of like pathology. You don't actually interact with patients because your patients are asleep. Obviously, that's not true in critical care. But even in general anesthesia, you are really make you have, first of all, your patients are very awake in the preoperative area. You can't, in fact, even give them any sedation, even anti-anxiety medication until they've signed all their consents. And so they, that takes, the, the nurses have to come out, the surgeons have to come out, the anesthesia team has to come out. And so uh, so they, even if they're very anxious, you have to wait on that. Um, and so, so much of it is the communication and, and reassurance and making them feel like they're in good hands and they're going to be okay. And that is easy to say and hard to do. It's one of the things I I really think um, you know we we people don't realize how much of a role we play in that time. There is you know you can imagine that if a patient goes in to surgery tachycardic and and tachypnic, so their heart's beating fast, they're breathing fast, they're stressed out, their cortisol is sky high. That's the stress hormone because they're so anxious. That is not a good thing. That is not going to bode well for their, for, and, and in fact, there is some data to suggest that in fact, they will do worse after surgery than if they go in calm. And so if I can help them be calm, if I can help them feel reassured and just take some deep breaths with me, uh, it makes a big difference. And in fact, as patients are going off to sleep, I will almost uh, like a, a, a meditation, I will say to them, I want you to take big, deep breaths, and as you're going off to sleep, I want you to think about the fact that you're going to wake up comfortable and safe, and you're in good hands, and we're going to get you home quickly to be with your family. You're going to be safe and comfortable. Take big, deep breaths in and out, and I will repeat that. And I do actually see from time to time, on the, because of course they're on the monitor, and you can see some patients whose heart rate will come down just in that 10 seconds, 15 seconds of hearing that. And this is before the anesthesia sets in. So they're still awake. Um, but it, it makes a big difference. And uh, and so I think that's a huge role that we play. So we have those discussions. And then at 7.30, we go back to the operating room. Uh, ideally, my rooms, my two rooms start slightly different times. So one resident may go back at, you know, 7.28 and the other at 7.32. And so, uh, you know, one will be putting on monitors and getting the patient pre-oxygenated, so letting them breathe some oxygen while I'm putting the breathing tube in with the other resident. And then I run to my other room, get the breathing tube in with that resident. And then I'll go back and forth helping them putting in the extra IVs. And if they need an arterial line or a central line, making sure all of that gets done. Uh, and that's how the morning starts. We're going to get back to the case we started with now, the patient with the injury to the aorta. So the surgeons were not down to the aorta and able to clamp it Correct. below the diaphragm? Correct. They were not. By the, when they got in, they tried to do that and they could not get a good, um, they couldn't get a good clamp on. 
So I can't explain to you the exact reason why or what was going on. Uh, I think the injury ended up kind of right peridiaphragmatic. And so you so, actually would have to, I'm going to guess at this point, go above the diaphragm right. and get at the aorta. Exactly. So to, what they do did, thoracotomy. They, did an, they did an OR thoracotomy, an unplanned OR thoracotomy, which is not something I had seen before. Um, you know, I've done a few of these and these are one of the most dramatic things we do in, you know, as a procedure in medicine. And it involves slicing all the way from the front of someone's chest at their breastbone all the way through to their back, basically along a rib line, and then spreading the ribs open so you can get at their heart, their lungs, and in this case, the aorta. Correct. And that is exactly what they did. And they uh, cross-clamped, meaning put a clamp on the aorta in the chest. And that is what allowed us to then finally get control. Now, in the meantime, while they were working on that, the patient was continuing to bleed was I think during that time had three different cardiac arrests that we were able to get them back from by, again, uh, epinephrine administration getting, so we put a very quick cordis, which is a large central IV into the neck. Um, and we were then able to give through the, using this rapid infuser, we were able to give many, many 30, 40 units of blood over the course of uh, five, 10 minutes. A cordis is a giant IV. It's like as thick as a, as a pen. And so we gave lots of blood and other blood products very quickly. And that, of course, since the bleeding was a problem, when we did that and gave appropriate medications, we were able to get the patient's heart back, meaning get them back, and keep them with a relatively good pressure during the time, uh, even when they were very close to having a cardiac arrest. So we were in constant motion, you know, several of us who were in the room, um, putting in line, putting in the line, uh, hooking up this transfuser, getting the units, making, you know, hooking up the units, making sure we were doing appropriate, you know, you, if you only give blood, as you may know, and you don't give the other things that are in blood, like plasma and platelets, then actually that that is a problem because the, the patient may have blood in them, but they don't have all the other stuff they need. Okay, so yeah. how did it end up? So, the, so this was a, just an incredibly... Um, uh, fast-paced, stressful, uh, you know, dangerous cases. I said the patient uh, theoretically died three times. Their heart stopped. Did three you feel times. you were going to get the patient back? Well, we got them back each time. Uh, I was not sure how the patient would do. I remember one point because I had not pre-opted the right. I, I was not the original attending, and so I said to the attending, "You know, what's how does this is this patient like very sick at baseline or how's he?" It turned out it was not. The patient wasn't that sick at baseline. The patient had um, cancer, and so had to, you know was having the surgery for cancer, but actually um, otherwise was relatively, I mean, not young, like a teenager, but relatively young and healthy. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, you know, because what we know as anesthesiologists is that makes such a difference. A young, healthy person who has a bad, you know, cancer, for example, can, the body can put up with incredible stress and insults and get through it. Whereas, you know, an old sick person who has that kind of something happen is unlikely to survive, or at least to survive in any kind of, you know, with any kind of reasonable functional capacity. And so the after the third arrest- The big thing when we talk about functional capacity, of course, the one we probably think of first is, is brain function. Yes. Because when your heart is empty, is empty, you can do CPR to pump the heart, but if there's nothing in it, you're not really delivering a lot of blood to the brain. That's and right. And the amount of time that the brain is not getting effective blood flow is going to play a role in, in how well someone bounces back. That's exactly right. Their memory, their ability, you know, their cognition. 100%. Whether they'll care ever- care for themselves. 100%. Be independent. That's exactly right. Whether they'll ever wake up at all, and if they do wake up, whether they'll be able to be in any way, you know, walk again, leave the hospital ever, be independent. So when they got the cross clamp through the thoracotomy, 
you at that point were able to catch up. We were then able to catch up that. Uh, so the, the final, the third and final cardiac arrest happened before that. And then once they got the cross clamp in and then we were able to, you know, give blood that wasn't then getting lost uh, back into the patient. Um, we The patient then did much better. We were actually able to, you know, stop giving blood products to, to um, cut way down on what we were doing. And then oh, the decision was made by the surgeons to uh, pack the abdomen. They were able to repair that, um, that uh, hole in the aorta, in the ab, in the kind of near diaphragmatic abdominal aorta, and then uh, unclamp in the chest and uh, get the patient closed up and go to the ICU. They did have vascular surgeons come in to help with that. It's another nice thing about being at a big academic center is that you have multiple uh, specialty services right there. And uh, amazingly, that patient uh, went to the ICU on just a very low dose presser, uh, obviously still intubated, um, but woke up the next day and was extubated and did fine. Talking. Talking, neurologically intact, walking. It, it, you know, it is, it is incredible. First of all, the credit goes to the patient, right? And the patient's body, then the, who clearly that patient is a fighter. Clearly that patient has a, a relatively young, healthy body that was able to withstand this. Um, but, uh, you know, again, but a little credit to you guys and how'd you feel? It was, it's an amazing feeling to feel, to have a patient who, who so easily could have died and, and to have them go through, you know, to, to get them through that and to have them walk two days later, uh, talk, you know, uh, be able to, to survive it, you know, to feel like, and, and to be honest, I was only a small part of it, but to feel like that the team and that include by that, by team, I mean, surgeons, both the original surgeons and the vascular surgeons, the anesthesia team, the, uh, the full, and by that, I mean, everybody who came to help out residents, uh, critical care technicians, uh, attendings, CRNAs, everybody who responded and was there willing to do whatever was needed uh, to get that patient through alive. It is a, it's an incredible feeling to be part of a team, as I'm sure you know, when a crisis happens and it, you just see a team come together and do whatever it takes to support each other and get the patient through the crisis. There are plenty of times when the patient doesn't make it through, but when they do and when someone who could have died is fine, a day or two later, it is pretty amazing. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. I know that there's an interesting story because you, you met your wife during your medical school years. Yes. So that is, the, of course, the highlight of, of medical school. What could be more important than that? During that third year one of the other longitudinal pieces was occasional shifts in the pediatric uh, acute care clinic. And as it turns out, there was a wonderful woman who was an attending in that clinic. Her name was Betty. Um, her last name is now Abibi hyphen Wolpaw. At the time, it was, it was just <laughs> You're giving away the story. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she was a uh, an attending in that acute care clinic. And so I worked with her periodically uh, over the course of the year. Maybe, uh, you know, I was in that clinic maybe, you know, a dozen times and probably worked with her half of those times. So maybe six, seven times over the course of the year. And I always was um, uh, very taken by her in many, many ways. I mean, she's an incredible physician. She is a, a, just an unbelievably um, capable in terms of how she connects to the patients and and how she's so supportive and uh, of, of learners and her colleagues and 
um, is just uh, a wonderful person. And that was so clear right from the beginning. She also happens to be gorgeous. And uh, I knew uh, right away that I, I thought she was just beautiful and just had this, this stunning smile. I'll never forget sort of noticing on day one. Um, but of course, I was a medical student. She was an attending and I knew there was no way that I was going to ask her out while I was her medical student. The very last shift of the year, I was in the pediatric acute care clinic and uh, we I, she happened to be working. We were seeing a patient together. I was presenting a patient to her and we had to leave early that day because we had the kind of end of year wrap up for our program, for this longitudinal program called Pisces. And I said to her, you know, uh, just to remind you, I have to leave because they're telling us we have to be at this thing. And she said, yeah, absolutely. No problem. Um, the kid, we hadn't kind of wrapped everything up with the kid. We still waiting for some labs to come back. And she said, you know, if you want to know what happens with the kid, just shoot me an email. And I thought, oh boy, you know, this is my chance. If I want to ask her out, like I've got the excuse to write her. So I went home that night and I composed this long email. I called it feedback and thoughts. And uh, the first half was saying just how much I appreciated all the learning over the course of the year and, and how amazing a teacher I thought she was, et cetera. And then I transitioned and I said, uh, you know, at the risk of, um, you know, uh, sounding like I, I you know, um, being inappropriate in any way uh, or taking away from what I've just said about, the, about how much I appreciated learning from you. Um, I do also want to say that, you know, I think you have the most amazing smile I've ever seen. And, you know, if there's any way you would consider um, going out for a drink or dinner sometime, uh, you know, I would I'd love to to go out. And I said, just so you know, I'm not 26. I didn't go straight through. Uh, you know, I was a teacher first and took four years off. So I'm, I'm not as young as some med students. And I actually had no idea how old she was. Uh, I knew she did not wear a wedding ring. But, you know, I didn't know she could have been married or in a relationship. I had no idea. And in fact, in that email, I said, you know, I, I don't know if you're married or in a relationship. If you are, please just take this as a compliment and, and you know, don't feel any need to respond. Um, but if not, and if there's any way you would consider going out with a medical student, uh, you know, um, it would, I, I would love to do it. And I told her, you know, I have no idea if this is a good idea or, or that you're going to think this is totally inappropriate. But I, I was afraid that if I didn't do it, I'd regret it for a long time. And so I felt like I just had to ask. And uh, I sent it, although I almost didn't send it. So I, I, this was right after Gmail had come out with the unsend button. And I sat there agonizing over whether to send it. And then I clicked send and then I totally panicked and I ran with the mouse. I jerked the mouse up to try to hit that unsend button. And my, I can still picture the little cursor flying right by the unsend button. And then I reversed course to try to get it back on top of the unsend button and, it, and the unsend button disappeared. And uh, so there was no going back. And so I, um, I thought, oh boy, you know, what if she sends this to the dean and the, and I get a professionalism reprimand? You know, what are you doing? Asking and attending out. I mean, I didn't know. And sure enough, I didn't hear anything from her for um, about two full days. I assumed that she was not going to respond. I was just hoping that it wasn't the dean who would respond. But uh, it turns out, I didn't know this at the time, that what she did is she got the email and she was kind of uh, very taken aback and wasn't sure what to do. So she sent it to all her friends. Uh, and she said, both men and women, and she said, you know, look at this email I got from this med student. And the women were all kind of like, oh, you know, that's weird. I don't know, whatever. And But the men who were all, you know, her co-residents, who had been her co-residents, who were all doctors, who had been med students, said, you know, you have to go out with him at least one time. It was, it took so much courage to write that email 
that you can't punish that kind of courage. You have to give him at least one day. Even if you're not interested, just go out one time with him and then never again. But don't punish that that kind of courage. And so she said, well, I'll think about it. And she sent the email then to her boss, who was the division head. And she said, you know, if I wanted to do this, can I even do this? Is this allowed? You know, she didn't know what the rules around this were. And he wrote back and included the kind of bylaws of the of the UCSF code. And that said, at the time, at least, uh, you know, as long as you are not supervising or evaluating a student, then it's fine. And of course, she was not going to be because I wasn't going into pediatrics. I wasn't doing any more pediatrics rotations. And I was done with that year in the clinic. Uh, and so she wrote me back. So I was actually in Boston getting ready to run the Boston Marathon. And I got this email back from her. And it said, thank you for the email. I'm glad you had a good experience in the clinic. We always uh, aim for medical students to have a good experience. Um, as for the rest of your email, I was surprised, but intrigued, throw out some dates. And so we then traded some date ideas back and forth in terms of uh, times we could get together. It took about seven days. So it was nine days from the time I had sent that email that we had our first date. And uh, we went out, we went out for Thai food in San Francisco. Uh, and then we hung out pretty much every day after that. And uh, seven months later, we got engaged. And six months after that, so 13 months after that email, we got married. Um, and it, it paid off. <laughs> it worked out. Uh, I certainly am, um, am glad I sent it. And uh, you didn't get a letter from your dean. Nope, never and got a letter. she didn't get a letter from, from her chair. Correct. We, we skated through. Um, and, you know, to be honest, at the time, and I don't know, UCSF may or may not have changed their... Um, there are rules around this stuff. Do you have time for another patient story? This one from the ICU. No problem. So again, so many, and I, as I said before, uh, some of the most rewarding are, are simply the, the conversations with patients' families. Um, but I will tell you uh, that years ago, uh, and it has always stayed with me, um, there was a, a young man who was in a car um, with, uh, you know, a group of, uh, uh fellow students, they were, uh, high school students and, um, uh, got in a car accident and, uh, there was a, they were, uh, several of them didn't do well. And this young man was one who, who had a, a lot of injuries, developed severe, severe, um, acute respiratory distress syndrome. So we call it ARDS. Uh, basically think of it as really bad damage to the lungs. It was so bad that, um, he could not, breathe or even be breathed for with an endotracheal tube. And so we had to put him on ECMO, which is uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And what that means is simply that we had a machine doing the work of the heart and lungs for him because he couldn't do it. So he was essentially being kept alive, uh, or not essentially, he was absolutely being kept alive by this machine, his heart uh, and lungs were not working. And he was, a uh, you know, some somewhere between 16 and 18. Uh, he was in the ICU on that machine for about three or four months. That's a long time to be on an ECMO machine. It is an un, it's a huge amount of time. Almost, I would say, impossible to recover from that. Um, but remember what I said before, young, healthy, it is miraculous. And, and I'll say my wife's a pediatrician, and what, what you realize with folks who take care of kids is, they see this all the time. The kids are so robust and, and they can re recover from things adults never could. 
And what was, you know, and so we were every day, first of all, it was incredibly hard for the family. So, you know, really, there was a lot of helping the family through this, through, you can imagine over those three to four months, there were days of just despair, thinking it would never get better, never end. There was discussion of whether to end it, right? Whether to stop the support um, and really helping the family think through that. Uh, and uh, of course, ultimately decided not to, they decided not to. And we, um, and, you know, taking really good care, really trying to, you know, um, help. Uh, and he, by the way, was conscious during uh, a lot of this. And so, you know, really trying to help him not despair, not give up, trying to get him. We were we made enormous efforts and were able to get him outside. So to wheel him with his ECMO circuit outside. So he was not intubated. He was intubated. He was intubated. Um, but we were able to wheel him with a ventilator, with an ECMO circuit, with all the monitors. It was So I'm saying this was not an easy process, but we were able, I mean, it took a huge amount of effort on the part of the nurses who are just, ICU nurses, by the way, are the most amazing people in the world and just can do things you would never imagine. Um, and so really the nurses get the credit. They were able to organize this and we were able to take him outside so he could see the sun, uh, feel the breeze. Uh, and we did that several times over the course of that time. And then, uh, and of course I was not on service in the ICU for four months. So I would come back occasionally, you know, about once every three to four weeks, I was back on service and would see him again, take care of him again, as many other uh, attendings and residents and, and nurses and, and NPs and PAs and everybody did. Um, and at the end of that four months, got him off the ventilator, off the ECMO circuit. And I'll never, and he, but I mean, he looked like a wraith, as you can imagine, right? I mean, he had, he was, I think, so he was a normal teenager, you know, probably was five, nine or something like that, five, 10. Um, and uh, he, when he left weight, I think about 80 pounds, and he came back, I'll never forget it, the day he walked back into that unit about six months later, you know, 170 pounds with his lacrosse stick and a picture of him on the lacrosse field uh, playing lacrosse and was 100% back to normal. He could run, he could think, he was excelling in school. And then he would send us periodically, sent us a picture of his college acceptance. Uh, you know, he um, got, into got into his top choice college, uh, was playing lacrosse, was, you know, totally back to normal. It was quite, uh, quite, quite a, uh, a monumental effort by the entire critical care and surgical. That is as much invasive care as you can deliver to a person. That's a great story. Dr. Jed Walpar, I'd like to thank you for joining. Paris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for doing what you're doing. I think it's going to make a big difference for a lot of folks out there. Well, thank you. This is Medical Moments. You've been listening to my interview with Dr. Jed Walpole, an anesthesiologist and intensivist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and the creator and host of the ACRAC podcast, that's A-C-C-R-A-C, on anesthesia and critical care. If you're a medical student or just getting interested in medical careers, there's another episode with the same guest where we focus on career questions such as how to best get into a specialty and develop a career. It's called the Medical Student Edition. Check it out.